presence here today. We thank you for Jeremy and his family and for their being able to join us today. And we just pray your Holy Spirit would continue to move among us. Uh, give Jeremy the words to share, to communicate those things that are on your heart and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Let me get situated here. Thank y'all for having us this morning. Um, yes, it's been a while since we've worshipped with y'all here. I think I was trying to remember if we had been here since we got back. I don't think we have. So. Uh, I think it was probably in 2013 was the last time we were here. Um, and I did want to, I wanted to thank y'all as a, corporately as a body, um, for your prayer and your financial support while we were overseas. Um, we, uh, we couldn't have done it, uh, without people like y'all, uh, sending us and supporting us, praying for us, um. So we've been back about two and a half years uh, from over there, and life has returned to normal for the most part. Um, we're still a little different, but uh, we're, uh, we're part of a small Presbyterian church in Chelsea, Alabama, and the kids are homeschooling, and I'm back at work as a network engineer. Um, so my dad's been asking me to come preach for y'all for that whole two and a half years. So <laughs> it's just taken me that long to get a sermon ready. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he's when he when he was asking me to preach. I guess we started talking about this in December, like most recently. Um, and he asked me to come talk about how all of Scripture is one continuous story, and because uh, sometimes we miss that we. Uh, we learn all the individual stories, but we don't often see how they relate to one another. Um, that's not. We all can get a little bit of a pass on that because this book that we call the Bible was written by about 40 different men in three different languages over 2,000 years. And so it's all compiled together into one book here that we call the Bible. Now, if you, look, if you ask the critical scholars, people that are not necessarily Christians, but they study the Bible, uh, they would say that these 66 books are independent works of Near Eastern Semitic literature. Um, however, we don't just view them as Near Eastern Semitic literature. We, uh, we view these books as the inspired Word of God. Um, the creator of the universe has revealed himself to us through this word. Um, and that's how we approach it. Um, he did use men to reveal this to us. Their personalities come through, their backgrounds and history and cultural context, their style of language. Um, all of that comes through, but it was inspired and the words that are here are the words that God wanted there. Um, so, today we want to look at how Jesus can help us understand this is one big story. And so we're going to be in Luke. You can open to Luke chapter 24. 
We're going to be reading verses 13 through 35. I'll pray and then we'll, I'll read the scripture. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather together. Um, Father, as we come under your word, use it to change us. Put it in our hearts. Through the power of your Holy Spirit, transform us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray this in His name. Amen. Amen. Verse 13 of chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was, made, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So here we kind of jumped in in the middle of uh, the chapter there while we've just uh, heard about the resurrection earlier in chapter 24 and we've got these these two disciples and uh, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Now this story is only recorded by Luke, so we don't have any other accounts and Matthew, Mark, or John to compare it to. Um, 
We're not real sure who these disciples are, but they're probably not any of the 11 disciples um, that we normally refer to. One of them is referred to as Cleopas, but we don't have any other reference to the other disciple by name. And we really don't know where this village was, Emmaus, that they were walking to. Um, Luke tells us that the name of the village, and he says it's about 60 stadia from Jerusalem, and that's about seven miles. Um, there's about three possibilities for this village, um, according to scholars, but only one of them really fits with the distance, and that village is three and a half miles away. So if it's the village in the passage, it would mean that Luke's measurement is actually a round-trip mileage. Um, which would make us wonder why why did he list it that way so if we keep thinking about it though we can we know we we have two unknown disciples they're walking out of Jerusalem toward a village named Emmaus on the third day after the crucifixion they've heard the report of the resurrection from the women who visited the tomb but they're they're still still not real sure what to think they seem to have had hope but now this hope is in question. In verse 21, you can see it. it. said, But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. They refer to their hope in the past tense as if it's a failed hope. Things aren't working out like they thought it would. So, if, if everything's all mixed up and there's all this drama, why aren't why are they leaving Jerusalem? Why aren't, the other disciples are gathered, they're praying, they're, they're working things out. What, what, what's drawing these two disciples away from Jerusalem? Um, so one thing that's been proposed is that maybe they were just leaving for the night. Uh, up until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the Passover had to be celebrated within the walls of the city. So everybody traveled to Jerusalem and they had to stay in a house inside the city to celebrate the Passover. Um, so Jerusalem was really packed. It was like game day in Tuscaloosa or something. Um, <clears throat> but then after the Passover, you still had the, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that went on for another five days. You didn't have to be in the city to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So a lot of people would presumably come and stay in the city for the Passover it's totally booked, no spare rooms, and then after that you would stay maybe in a surrounding village with family or friends or whatever and just come into the city for whatever you were doing during the day. So if that's the case, it would fit in with the seven mile round trip theory and uh, it would also allow them to leave late that evening after Jesus vanishes and get back to Jerusalem before the disciples would presumably be asleep. So, so, there's a lot of stuff we really don't know. We can speculate about it. Um, but one thing is for certain. These two disciples, they didn't understand what was going on here. Um, they, didn't, they had seen the events take place, but they, they couldn't make sense of any of it. Um, but that's not really uncommon, really. I mean... How often do we misinterpret what our own family does, much less those outside of our immediate circles? In a crisis, there are often many eyewitnesses 
but most of the witnesses don't understand what was actually happening. An eyewitness can only tell you about the portion they see with their own eyes, right? They never really see the big picture. Um, when we were in Papua New Guinea, <clears throat> we took several trips into the bush to an area that we were trying to church plant. And this, this place called Samiri, it was a village about a 10 mile walk off the nearest road and across several swollen rivers. On the first night that I spent in this village, I was with Sam, our oldest son, and, and one of our teammates. And uh, that night, we woke up in the middle of the night to a really loud banging noise. It sounded like someone was running around the village with a large blunt object and rhythmically banging on each of the huts. Now, we didn't have any idea of what was going on. We were there. There was this weird moaning and wailing, and we just, we had no idea. And <laughs> instead of investigating, we all pretended like we were asleep until daylight. <laughs> so even with many explanations, we didn't really understand the whole situation at all for several days, and even then, you know, my understanding of it is probably very surface level. Um, so my first-hand account of this situation is not really all that helpful other than to confuse people. <laughs> um, you have no idea what's really going on from my version of the story. Well, this happens in each of our lives. Um, as our expect expectations are not met by our friends, by our family, or by God Himself, we are confused and lost, and our hope starts to give way. And we're left looking sad and standing still. Metaphorically speaking, you could say we are standing on the side of the road to Emmaus with these two disciples. We need Jesus to explain things to us. We need Him to reveal Himself to us. Only then will our hope be restored. Thankfully, for these two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus does walk into the story. He lovingly draws them out. He hears their concerns. And then starting with Moses and all the prophets, He explains to them how the Old Testament points to Him. So think about this for a minute. Even though the disciples were living the story, they had not connected the events of Jesus' life and ministry with the larger story of Scripture. They saw Him as the hope of Israel. They referenced that in this passage. But they didn't understand how that hope would become a reality. And Jesus even reminds them it was, it was clearly predicted that these things would have to come to pass. Um, but the disciples were still looking for an earthly kingdom. Even though Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, they were looking for a kingdom of this world. And crucifixion and death did not fit with the kingdom of this world that they were looking for. So they were lost and their hope had failed. So I want us to kind of reflect on ourselves a little bit, our own situations, and really ask ourselves, does this describe us? Um, I know some days this describes me when I fail to see the, the fruit of my own labor, when my efforts are 
just seemingly thwarted by circumstances, by living life in a world that has fallen, um, by the prince of the power of darkness, by my hope, it just it crumbles. Um, especially when I am not looking at the finished work of Christ. When I don't look towards the restoration that is to come in, in the resurrection, when I'm depending on my effort today, my hope fails. <clears throat> so, how do we fight this? How do we, how do we change this mindset? Jesus does this for these disciples by explaining to them their place in the story. And He does that by telling them how all of the Scripture that they already had pointed to Him. He shows them that this whole thing, this whole book, is about Jesus. Now, when we first come to faith, it's usually because we have perceived our personal need for a Savior. We've seen our own sinfulness, the brokenness of our circumstances, the state of our own hearts, and we cry out to God to save us. <clears throat> but if we stay there, if we stay in that place, we tend towards a me-focused gospel. Or maybe our circumstances don't need fixing right now. Maybe we just come to Jesus and we put Him on a shelf. And we just reach up there to get Him when we need something. We need a wish granted. Um, either way, whether we want God to come in and fix all of our crises, or we want to put Him on a shelf and use Him when we need Him, our view of the Gospel is too small. But once we can see the full scope of the story of Scripture, we see that the, the universe was created for the express purpose of glorifying God through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's part of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But how does that work out? How does that connect with the Gospel? <clears throat> the thing is, is if we really understand the Gospel, it's not, <clears throat> it's not just entering into our story. It's calling us into its story. A lot of times we have things upside down. We want God to come into our life when He's calling us into what He's already doing. Um, when you start to see that the, the Bible is, is the story of all of creation, it is the meta-narrative. There is no grander story with which to encompass things. Then our priorities can shift. Our motives can change. Our desires, our passions, our loves can change. And the only way that I know of to accomplish this in our hearts is we have to become students of the Word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth. It's only then, as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes through His revealed Word, that we encounter Christ in the text. <clears throat> and we should take note that these disciples who Jesus spoke to, they didn't keep this secret information that Jesus gave them to themselves. They went back and they, they shared it with the eleven. And if we follow the narrative along in the Luke's second book in Acts, we see that the disciples gathered daily. 
in Jerusalem. They worked out their faith. We see the development of their biblical theology in the sermons recorded in Acts. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter gives the, the very first Christian biblical theological sermon, and he appeals to the Old Testament for his case for the gospel. And then the, we see that case develop and be extended because he preaches again on Solomon's porch. And then later, kind of like the pinnacle of biblical theological sermons in the Bible, we see Stephen's sermon before he's uh, stoned. So these, these two disciples where Jesus explains this to, they, they went back and they, they shared this. They, they discussed it. They, they reflected back on the text. Um, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, He opened their eyes to the truths that are in Scripture. <clears throat> it totally changed the disciples. Disciples of Acts are not the disciples of the Gospels. Um, the disciples in the Gospels are scared. They abandon Christ. Their faith is, is weak and faltering. The disciples of Acts are bold. They proclaim truth. They carry out the work of the ministry of Christ. <clears throat> Beyond the Acts narrative, we have the letters of Paul and Peter and James, John, Jude, the unknown author of Hebrews. And in these letters, the apostles, they show us how to interpret the Old Testament rightly. Because without this New Testament grid with which to understand the Old Testament, you can know the entire Old Testament front to back and entirely miss the point of Christianity. That was the fault of the Jewish leaders during Jesus' time. They memorized most of the Old Testament, but they totally missed the Word when it walked into their lives. So what prevents us from doing the same thing? We have to approach the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament authors. They give us a grid for interpreting the Old Testament. It's the same grid that Jesus gave these two disciples here in Luke. <clears throat> if we neglect this perspective, we become Pharisees. We start chasing after holiness without the power of the Holy Spirit. A holiness that can never be attained through works of the law. But that hasn't stopped generations of misguided Christians from trying. But it doesn't end in joy. It ends in despair. Now, in our time together this morning, we can't, we can't possibly cover everything that Jesus could have communicated to these two disciples. But I do want us to look at a couple of New Testament passages and then one major theme that runs through the Bible. So if you will, flip over to Hebrews chapter 1. Read verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He create, also created the world. 
Here, the author of Hebrews is introducing a new concept that Christ is the fulfillment of God's revelation to mankind. Previously, he used his prophets and visions to speak to his people. But now Christ is the one who brings God's word to man. Another one I want us to look at briefly is uh, 2 Corinthians 4.6. Here Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here Paul is, is telling us that our, our hearts are awakened by the same God who called forth light from nothing. This God who, who created, I guess in Latin, my kids will correct me if I say it wrong. He created ex nihilo. He created. He called forth everything from nothing. There wasn't a pile of matter sitting there that he shaped into something. He called matter into existence. He called light into existence. This God awakens our hearts. And that light that he shines into our hearts wakes us up to realize that the glory of God is ultimately realized in the face of Jesus Christ. And the last New Testament passage I want us to look at is in Colossians chapter 1. This is going to hopefully tie all these together. It's verses 24 through 27. Galatians is uh, General Electric Power Company. Yeah. <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in, here we see that there was this mystery hidden in the Old Testament that the Jews missed, but that it has now been revealed and that that mystery has been revealed by Jesus Christ and the content of that mystery is that Christ would dwell in us to the glory of God now to our American ears that's not that surprising it sounds kind of normal especially growing up in the south where everybody's been talking about asking Jesus into your heart you know everybody door-to-door -door evangelism I mean it's a fairly common concept um, even non-christians 
have heard that phrase, right? Have you asked Jesus into your heart? But from the Jewish perspective, God didn't dwell in people's hearts. God dwelt in the temple. Only those who were clean could approach Him. And even then, only at prescribed times with the right ritual. The people's sins were forgiven by the yearly sacrifice of the priest on the Day of Atonement. And to say that Christ, who is God, would dwell in us was scandalous to the Jewish mind. Now you might say, well, well, Paul, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He wasn't really preaching to Greeks. I mean, to Jews, he was probably preaching to Greeks. But in the Greek worldview, gods were these like capricious uh, demi-beings that, you know, they, they didn't really care whether mankind did well or not. Um, the best that man could do in the Greek worldview was to appease the gods in some way so that they wouldn't destroy them. To say that the transcendent God who created the entire universe would come and dwell in a person would be scandalous in the Greek mind as well. It just it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to the Jews. It doesn't make sense to the Greeks. And it doesn't make sense to modern man. But Jesus is calling you into the story of the God of creation. And He wants to dwell with you forever. That's the reality of what the Bible says. Now in the garden, going back to the Old Testament, in the garden, Garden of Eden, God dwelt with man. God walked and talked with Adam and Eve. And the writer of Genesis, who we believe to be Moses, even described the garden with specific temple-like language full of precious stones and gold. But this temple in the garden, it was a conditional temple. It was dependent on the continued obedience of man. And through the sin of Adam and Eve, man was removed from the garden and lost fellowship with God, his Creator. And later, during the time of the Exodus, and then during the time of the Kings, God teaches the Israelites about His holiness, and what is required of his dwelling place through the tabernacle and eventually Solomon's temple. But the people, they, they didn't keep God's covenant. Even though they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and said, we will do all that you have commanded us to do, they didn't do it. And they reaped the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28. The northern kingdom that we call Israel was destroyed by Assyria and the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile. In Ezekiel's vision, in Ezekiel 10, he, he describes in his vision the, the presence of God rose up out of the temple and departed the city through the eastern gate. From that point, God did not dwell in the temple. Jerusalem was destroyed and Judah went into exile. Later, during the time of Ezra, a remnant returns. And Ezra completed the rebuilding of the temple. But the presence of God did not enter the temple. This, this building that Ezra built, it was this small, rustic house of wood. 
It didn't even compare to the Temple of Solomon. The old people wept. Um, and God did not enter this temple. Later, under Roman rule, Herod built a temple. It was this large, massive complex. But it, it was more of a political pacifier for the Jews to keep them at peace so he could be a successful governor. And God did not enter that temple either until Joseph and Mary. They carried a five-week-old Jesus into the temple. In Jerusalem at that time, there was this man named Simeon. He had been waiting a long time for the Redeemer of Israel to appear. He was filled with the Spirit and took baby Jesus in his arms and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So for 500 years, God had not dwelt with man. And here he comes in the form of a baby of two poor Jews from the backwaters of Nazareth on top of that. <clears throat> now except for the times that Jesus was in the temple here on earth, the temple of Herod did not contain the presence of God. The temple, it was to be the place where God dwelt with man, but that wasn't the case. But now, God dwells in us. Those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and have repented of their sin, that's where God dwells. And that is the mystery that has been revealed, that was hidden for generations. Now there are some who would see the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt again. There are even Christians who give money to a fund to rebuild the temple. They think it will bring about the end times, but they've missed the message of the Bible and they've missed the message of Revelation. In Revelation, the Apostle John says, that when Christ returns, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven to earth and that there will be no temple. <clears throat> that God will dwell with man through the presence of His Son, Jesus Christ. So there will be no need for a building to be a temple in this new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem will be the fulfillment of that prototype that was in the garden. But we're not going back to the garden exactly. We're going forward to the garden within a city. An ever-expanding city that will cover the face of the earth with the presence of God. If you get a chance, just read Revelation 20, 21, and 22 and then compare it to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And look at how how many of the themes that are started in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are wrapped up in Revelations 20, 21, and 22? How the, uh, the river of life that runs through the middle of the city that's lined with the tree of life on the sides. I mean, it, it really is what the description brings to mind. If you picture it, 
it's almost like a, a, a city park. It's, it's, it's the garden within the city. And so, if man had continued with his dominion mandate and maintained the garden, then as the garden had grown and, and man developed civilization, then it would have been a garden within a city. And so, we couldn't do that though. We couldn't fulfill that dominion mandate and we needed Christ to do it for us. And that's what we look forward to. So as we consider kind of what we've looked at is this theme of God dwelling with man from Genesis to Revelation. Does that change our view of having Jesus in our heart today? That Christ in us individually is part of the mystery that is driving all of history. We are part of something bigger than ourselves, bigger than anything we can imagine. That we will be part of this new creation, imaging forth God for eons to come. Now going back to our two disciples on the road to Emmaus here in Luke 24, we don't know exactly what Jesus told them during the few hours that they had together, but we know it changed them. <clears throat> we know it convinced them of the truth of the resurrection. It restored their hope. Before this conversation with Jesus, their hope had failed. And after this conversation with Jesus, their hope was restored. And the other thing it did was it set in motion the development of the theology of the church coming all the way to us today. Now following the walk with Jesus, they asked Jesus to stay and eat with them. And as they broke bread together, Jesus' identity became clear to them. They were with the Lord. Their eyes were opened. He was alive. As soon as they realized who He was, He vanished from their sight. They reviewed their time with Him and realized that they, they should have known that it was Jesus as He was explaining the Scriptures to them. I mean, really. <laughs> Who else is going to be able to come and explain all the Old Testament to you on the side of the road, right? <clears throat> I think there's something else going on here as well. that When Christ broke bread with them, because the breaking of bread with one another involves a knowing of the other. In communion, we know Christ through the remembrance of His sacrifice for us. And we encounter Him afresh each time as we consider our continued need for forgiveness that is offered through His sacrifice. He doesn't make demands of us. We come to the table freely seeking Him. And it's in His presence that we are forgiven and sustained. Now Luke, the author of this narrative, was making a point with it as well. As the two disciples returned to Jerusalem, they share this story with the eleven, and they said, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. So they, they say this back to uh, the guys. And then to sum things up, Luke says, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. If you read Acts closely, you'll notice that Luke continues this theme. The breaking of bread together 
is a part and parcel of dwelling with one another. And so he shows how that happens as the early church gathers together for teaching and fellowship and prayers. You are known by those you eat with, right? As you have a meal with someone, you, are, you talk with one another and you share life together. And as we break bread together, as a corporate body, we encounter Christ in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. Now these two disciples, they needed Jesus to explain the events of the past few days to them. They needed Him to affirm His presence, His life. Their own hope was failing. They needed to encounter Christ, and He met them where they were, without hope on the road to Emmaus. So where do we encounter Christ? Where do we find our hope restored when it has failed? First, we encounter Him in His Word. The apostles have left a road map for the Old Testament to guide us to Him. But we must become students of the Word. Without biblical literacy, we cannot hope to understand how this complex book works together as one book, one story. Now we can study alone in our prayer closet, and it's important to meditate on the written Word, but we, we must be wary if our study of Scripture never includes others. The disciples of the early church made it a priority. They met together daily to hear the teaching of the apostles for fellowship and for prayer. And it was through this Bible study and community that the early church was born. Together, guided by the Spirit, they formed the theology and teaching of the early church. By ourselves, we can go down many misguided rabbit holes. We, we get off the beaten path. We start reading about uh, blood moons or some <laughs> other crazy book that's at Lifeway. Um, <clears throat> but together, we can call each other back towards biblical fidelity. Uh, and this actually leads us to the second place that we encounter Christ. We encounter Him in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. In our own lives, as one body, we're here to fulfill that role for each other. I want to close with a quote from a book by, uh, it's one of my favorite books, by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. When people are deeply affected by the Word, they tell it to other people. God has willed that we should seek and find God's living Word in the testimony of other Christians in the mouths of human beings. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's Word to them. They need them again and again when they become, un when they become uncertain and disheartened because living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves without cheating themselves out of the truth. They need other Christians as bearers and proclaimers of the divine word of salvation. They need them solely for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Christ in their own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the word of other Christians. Their own hearts are uncertain. Those of their brothers and sisters are sure. At the same time, this also clarifies that the goal of all Christian community is to encounter one another as the bringers of the message of salvation. So what he's saying there is basically that when I'm weak, 
Yes, I can go to the Word. Yes, I can pray, and I should. But I need brothers and sisters who will speak truth into my life, who will restore my hope, who will pray for me, who will guide me back to the truth. <clears throat> so if you're here today and you're, you're broken by life, take heart, dear friends, for He is risen indeed. He died for you. And He is calling you into His story. He is calling you into communion with His body, the church. May we, as His church, be the hands and feet of Christ to such who have been downtrodden by life.